The book of Galatians is considered by many to be, and here's, here's some quotes, the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Um, they would call it that over in England. Over on this side of the pond, some have called it the Christian Declaration of Independence. Luther called it his Katie von Bora. That was his wife's name. For he said, I am wedded to it. Luther loved the book of Galatians. It was the foundation of the Protestant Reformation. A scholar by the name of Merrill Tenney writes, Few books have had a more profound influence on the history of mankind than has this small tract. For such it should be called. Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect and the thought of the Western world might have been entirely pagan had it never been written. Another scholar, Farrar, said this, the words scrawled on those few sheets of paper were destined to wake echoes which have lived and shall live forever and ever. They were the Magna Carta of spiritual emancipation. And then one more, another scholar says, the Galatian letter is the pebble from the brook with which the reformers smote the papal giant of the Middle Ages. Today, we get into the heart of the letter. Uh, Remember the situation. Paul preached the gospel in a in a region called Galatia, a bunch of towns, uh, and started churches. He preached Christ. The, the Gentiles believed the gospel. The Holy Spirit started to change these people. And then, after Paul left, some uh, false teachers, we call them Judaizers, came into the churches and they said, well, that's a good start. That's nice that you believe in Jesus. But now you need to complete the deal by getting circumcised. And you, uh, you Gentiles, you need to adopt the Jewish diet. And you need to eat kosher food. See, you can't just be saved by believing in Jesus Christ alone. You need to add to that Jewish works. Circumcision and food laws. Right? So Paul, in this letter, he sits down. He's angry. He writes an angry letter. And you could really divide it into three parts. First two chapters would be his autobiographical defense. He has to defend, first of all, his own apostleship. They were saying he's a second-rate apostle with a second-rate gospel. So the first two chapters, he defends that, no, even though he's not one of the twelve, Christ did select him as an apostle. And he directly gave Paul the gospel. This isn't something that was handed down to Paul secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, and he goofed it up. He got it directly from Jesus. But then when he went and laid out the gospel to the other apostles, they gave him the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they were all on the same page that this is the correct gospel. In fact, they didn't correct him. If anybody did any correcting, Paul corrected Peter, not for his doctrine, but for his behavior which communicated a false gospel. So that's the 
autobiographical defense, chapters 1 and 2. Now we get into chapters 3 and 4, which is his apologetic defense. He is basically going to argue from Scripture, that Scripture has always taught that you are justified by faith alone, not by faith plus works. That's chapters 3 and 4. And then 5 and 6 are the application. See, Paul, even in his angry letter, followed a three-point outline that I'll begin with the same letter. Okay? Well, today we're going to start to look at the apologetic defense, chapter uh, 3 and 4. There's really about eight arguments. We're only going to cover three today. Um, But Paul argues that Scripture has always taught that you're saved by faith alone, not faith plus works. Um, But the first thing, the first argument he gives is an argument from experience. Okay? Now, um, arguments from experience are somewhat dangerous because they're based on the subjective. If that's the only argument he gave, he'd be on, on thin ice. But he combines this argument with seven other arguments from Scripture. And he shows again and again and again that you're justified by faith alone, not by works. Okay? But here's the argument from experience. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And in fact, stop right there. Does this bother you that he says foolish? Because Jesus says, if you use the, the term fool, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. And here he says, oh, foolish Galatians. Um, that bothered me a little bit. I looked it up. It's two different words. Uh, what Jesus is condemning is uh, the tearing down of the individual. You idiot. You, it's, it's when you berate people with words. Okay? Here, I believe Paul is he's not berating them be, uh, as idiots. He is in fear that they didn't get the gospel. He is genuinely concerned that they have foolishly chosen to follow an incorrect gospel. So, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you has a has a sorcerer cast a spell on you that you're so quickly deserting the true gospel it was before your eyes that jesus christ was publicly portrayed as crucified now there's the heart of the gospel because i remember i came to your towns i came to your churches i preached and i I told you the heart of the gospel was that God became a man. And that man was stripped naked and he was nailed to a cross and he bled and he died. That's the gospel. He died in your place. You believed that. The Holy Spirit came in and started changing you. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I saw that you believed. I saw that you got saved. I saw the Holy Spirit start to work amongst you. Now let me ask you this. How did you get the Holy Spirit? Was it through circumcision and food laws? No. You're only thinking about that right now. You already received the Holy Spirit. See, this is an argument from experience. He goes on in verse 3. Are you so foolish 
having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You started by faith alone. Do you now need to finish what God started in your own fleshly efforts? Didn't, wasn't salvation by faith alone good enough? Do you need to, to complete God's perfect work by adding to it your own works? Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain? Now, uh, the word suffer can mean suffer pain, or it, it can just mean experience. Most of the commentators I read said it just means experience. Um, so did you experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Was that all just an illusion? Was that a waste of time when that Holy Spirit came and started to transform you and change you? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And they would have to say, hearing with faith. (laughs) I don't know what happened to us. We were clearly the Holy Spirit was working amongst us. And now these guys came in and told us we're really not not fully saved until we, we do these works. Now, Paul, you're right. We, I, we, I don't know what came over us. We must have been bewitched. He's hoping that that would be their response. Now, um, let me relate this to, uh, to my life. And I've told this many times before. I got saved at age 19. I was out at Northern Illinois University. I uh, walked into a Campus Crusade for Christ meeting. The gospel was presented, and I believed in Jesus. And uh, within a short amount of time, he starts cleaning me up. He starts cleaning up my language and some of my behaviors. Not perfect, but um, I, I, I actually remember stepping back and watching myself and going, wow, this is kind of fun. God is working in me. Because I used to like to do this stuff, and now I see him changing me. My thinking and my language and, and all kinds of things. And then I actually like the Bible before I could care less. Now I'm reading it on my own, going to Bible studies, and then after a while I'm teaching it. Not that I was an expert. I just had an a NIV, New Testament, no cross-references, no footnotes, no study notes. But I would read it and go to Bible study and make somewhat intelligent conversations. And before long, they said, why don't you lead the next one? Okay. Um, then we're, I, I started doing, with a friend, outreaches where we would, would invite people to events and preach the gospel. Nobody told me to do this. It was just God working. Right? Then, um, oh, and I would also pile people in the car on Sunday morning, pull them out of bed. We're going to church. And I would drive a, about an hour and a half to church. And uh, I mean, I was an evangelism machine. Uh, I had friends make fun of me behind my back. Family members think I'd lost it. Um, in the summer in between, uh, before I went to seminary, uh, I worked at the fabulous Schwartz Resort Hotel up in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, where the towels are so fluffy you can hardly close your suitcase. Right? <laughs> And um, there's a bunch of college kids who were entertainers at night who were all like wannabe, and I did my magic act there. 
and then during the day we had different jobs and stuff. And one of the college girls died. And um, the Jewish owner said, why don't you do a memorial service? So everybody went in the nightclub, and I pretty much led a funeral. Wasn't ordained, or I wasn't, I didn't even know what I was doing, but I did know the gospel, and I preached the gospel. We had a little funeral, a little, funeral a little memorial service. Then I went to seminary, and about my second year in seminary, um, I'm attending a church, and I'm thinking, you know what? I was baptized as a baby. I don't, I don't, I don't buy infant baptism at all. I should probably get baptized. And I got baptized my second year in seminary. Now, we came across uh, some people um, in, on Elizabeth's side of the family, they will remain nameless, who got involved in a certain church. And this church teaches that you can't be saved unless you get baptized as a believer. And I'm like, no way, that's, that's crazy. But it forced me to study the issue of baptism. And basically, the first thing that came out of my mouth when I was challenged that you can't be, bapti- you can't be saved unless you're baptized was my own experience. I thought to myself, so if what you're saying is true, I wasn't saved for the first four years of my salvation. That Holy Spirit changing my language and my mind and giving me a love for the Bible and doing evangelistic outreaches and loving church and loving the Bible, uh, that, was, that didn't really mean I was saved. I wasn't saved until I was baptized. Don't buy it. I don't buy it. I was saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And then out of obedience, I got baptized. Now, um, this person would say, you can't be saved Unless you're baptized. I would say something close, but I wouldn't say that. I would say, if you're saved, you will get baptized. But there's a huge difference between saying, if you're saved, you'll take that first step of obedience, and saying, you can't be saved without that first step of obedience. See, what I believe is you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone and he produces a love for him and a desire to obey him and the first thing he commands you to do as a follower, I mean, we just sang all those songs, I surrender all. And there are some people who will say, yes, I surrender all, but I ain't getting baptized. Liar. What are you, what are you doing singing, I surrender all, but I won't get baptized? See, I preach baptism pretty strongly. But not that it saves you. I was saved without being baptized. But then, as a step of obedience, I got baptized. Come on, get baptized, people. (laughs) Why wouldn't you? you? Do you claim Christ as your Lord? 
First thing he says, publicly identify with me. But just as strongly as I believe you need to take that step of obedience, you are saved by faith alone, not by baptism or any other work. Right? So Paul's first argument is an argument from experience. Did you, get, did you get the Holy Spirit and did he work amongst you and through you and in you and do miracles because you obeyed some law? No. Your experience shows you that you were saved by faith alone, not by works. All right? So let's move on to the second argument that he gives, the argument from Abraham. Now, let me take you first of all to Genesis Genesis 15, where God speaks to Abraham and he makes him a promise. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So his promise is that you are going to be the father of millions Right? Now, Paul would say the key verse to the entire Old Testament is the next verse. Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, the father of the Jews, looked up, believed God, and God counted him righteous. What did he do to earn righteousness? Nothing. He believed And God counted him righteous. Now, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he says this, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Paul's reminding the Jews, who loved Abraham, that God promised Abraham that that Gentiles would be included by faith alone, just as Abraham was saved by faith alone. Now, um, Paul, in Romans 4, expands this argument even further. Here, he just quotes Genesis 15, 6. And then he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In Romans 4, he expands it further. He says this, When was Abraham declared righteous? When he believed. 
When does that take place? Genesis 15. You turn to chapter 16. You turn to chapter 17. Fourteen years later, when God speaks to Abraham again, and he says, I want you to get circumcised. Abraham then gets circumcised. Paul, in Romans 4, asks the question, when was Abraham declared righteous? When he believed in chapter 15, he doesn't quote the chapter, right? When he believed or when he got circumcised? Answer, when he believed. It was 14 years later that he followed through with the ritual of circumcision. Apply that to the New Testament. Do do you really think Paul is saying, you're not saved by works, you're not saved by works. Abraham was saved by faith, not by rituals. But in the New Testament, you're saved by faith and rituals. Do you really think that's what his argument is? His argument is, you're saved by faith alone, just as Abraham was saved by faith alone, not by faith plus a ritual. Okay? Now, in verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So here is another quote. God tells Abraham that in you shall all the nations be blessed. So the Jews seem to dwell on the fact that Abraham was chosen by God. They're his descendants. They thought we're in by being in the flow chart. We're in because we're descendants of Abraham. Paul is saying, wait a minute, you seem to have forgot that God promised Abraham that the Gentiles would be blessed too. How do you get in? Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In other words, the argument is this. You're connected to Abraham by faith, not by flowchart. Okay? The Jews thought they were in by flowchart. There are certain churches who say, well, we're, we're the right church because if you take our leader, you can trace the leader before him and the leader before him and the leader before him all the way back to the apostles. To the first, to Peter, the first pope. I won't tell you who I'm talking about here, okay? In other words, we're right because of the flow chart. And Paul says, you're connected to Abraham, not by flow chart, but by faith. In fact, here's the account of of John the Baptist baptizing But when he saw, and this is Matthew 3, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I always like to say that was the first seeker-friendly sermon ever preached. And then he says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't think you're in by the flow chart. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
I tell you that God is able to raise up from these stones. It's a veiled reference to Gentiles. Children for Abraham. How, how, could, how could God possibly create children of Abraham from Gentiles? They're not born into the right family. Because you're connected to Abraham by faith, not by family lineage. And, you know, again, a warning. Just because you're born into a certain church or your parents are in this church or in another Bible teaching church, you're not in by flowchart. You need to have faith in Christ yourself. Okay? But the bigger point is, how was Abraham saved? By faith or circumcision? Faith. How are you saved? By faith or faith plus works? By faith. Okay? Now, the third argument that Paul gives, starting in chapter 3, is the argument from Scripture, from the Old Testament Scriptures. And in um, a few verses, he quotes the Old Testament four times. So let's touch on each, each one. In verse 10, he says, For all who rely... On works of the law, okay? All of you who want to rely on getting circumcised to get into heaven? For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, now he's going to quote from the Old Testament. Here's a quote right out of the law. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27, very interesting chapter. Moses is writing the end of Deuteronomy. He's ready to die. And they're ready to go into the land. And he says, when you go into the land of Israel, there's two mountains right next to one another. In fact, here they are. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. When you go into the land, this is to be a regular ritual. Half of the tribes of Israel are to stand on one side of the mountain. The other half, you're on this other mountain. And you are to shout blessings and curses back toward one another. Now, people look at this. By the way, this is Hebron right here. This is modern-day Israel. And people have said, there's about a mile in between those mountains. There's no way they could hear. Apparently, people have done this, and it's like a little natural amphitheater where you can actually hear people a mile away from the other mountain. Okay? Now, here's what they were to shout when it came to the curses. Now, the reason I'm going into this is, is this. Remember, there's a group of people who say that when Paul says um, you're not saved by works of the law, there's a group of people who would say, well, works of the law, it's just referring to Jewish ceremonial law. And I would say no, he's not restricting it to Jewish ceremonial law. When he says you're not saved by works of the law, it means moral law also. See, that's important because if all Paul is saying is you're not saved by circumcision and food laws, then that opens up the possibility that you might be saved by other kinds of laws. I believe when Paul says you're not saved by works of the law, he is abolishing the whole Mosaic law, including the moral law. So, why are we going to look at this? Because when we look at Deuteronomy chapter 27, 
where Paul gets his quote in Galatians 3.10, I want you to ask the question, do the curses come upon Israel for not keeping the ceremonial law or not keeping the moral law? So here's some of the curses. So people on one side of the mountain are to say, cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, and things made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Now, creating an idol, is that a moral or a ceremonial sin? Let's go moral. Idolatry moral. You make me nervous, people. Okay. (laughs) Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother. Is that moral or ceremonial? Moral, okay, we got it. Now we got the rhythm going here, all right? Um, Moves his neighbor's landmark. That's stealing his land. Moral, good, good, okay? Misleads a blind man on the road. (laughs) I find that one weird. (laughs) Was there a lot of that going on? I don't know. (laughs) Which, Which way to Jericho? It's really that way, but you say that way, and it's a cliff. I mean, I don't know why... That's going on. Uh, perverts the justice due, justice due to the sojourner. Now And then it gets kind of creepy here with all kinds of incest and stuff. Lies with his father's wife. Lies with any kind of animal. Lies with his sister. Lies with his mother-in-law. Um, so what's that? Is that ceremonial or moral? You better get that right, Okay. Strikes down his neighbor in secret, uh, takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. Paul is now going to quote or paraphrase verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not conform, uh, confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. So you're not saved by works of law. And then he quotes verse 26. Works of law have to include not just the ceremonial laws, I hope you followed that. Okay. Um, now, why, why can't following the law justify you? Well, let's go back. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You want to be justified by law? You've got to keep these, these laws, all of them, Perfectly. And not just these, but the, the entire Old Testament law. Nobody could do that. Now, somebody might object and say, wait a minute. Didn't they have the sacrificial system? They didn't have to keep the law perfectly. They could bring an animal to the temple and be forgiven, couldn't they? Yes, they could. But even the Judaizers, Paul's opponents here, would agree that now that Christ has come, he's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. Those sacrifices in the law don't count anymore because Christ has fulfilled them. You want to go back to to trying to save yourself by the law? All you're left with is perfect obedience to the raw law. Christ has come, fulfilled all the sacrifices. You want to you impose salvation by law? Then guess what? You've got to keep it perfectly. 
is what Paul is saying here. And you know what? Today, I would say that to somebody. How are you going to get to heaven? Well, I'm a pretty good person. Pretty good? Do you realize that if your plan is to get to heaven by, by your own law keeping, the requirement is you need to keep it perfectly? How are you doing at that? Right? So, so that's his quoting of, uh, of the Deuteronomy verse. So now, verse 11, he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And now he's going to quote another Old Testament verse. Not from the law, but from the prophets. From the little prophet Habakkuk. I don't know if he was a little short guy, but he has a short book. Okay, um, Habakkuk 2.4 where Habakkuk says the righteous shall live by faith. What's he saying here? Hey, the concept that the righteous live by faith is not some New Testament concept. It's been there all along in the Old Testament too. That's all he's saying there. Verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. This is a quote from Leviticus 18.5. 18.5. And I think Paul is simply emphasizing that law is about doing. Faith is about believing. Law is about doing. Now that the Old Testament sacrifices have been fulfilled in Christ, if you want to choose the doing plan, you've got to do it perfectly. And the law emphasizes doing. The one who does them shall live by them. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Puts you back under the curse of the law. Now, speaking of curses, he quotes another verse. And he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. There's regulations about, you know, I guess back then when somebody died in shame, they would put the body up on a tree for everybody to see. And it says, take the body down. Because the body's under the curse of God. Paul is, is taking that and he's saying, who do you know who was hung on a tree? Jesus was hung on a tree in shame, but we know that it wasn't really his shame, it was our shame. It wasn't his sin that put him there, it was our sin that put him there. The curse of God came upon him as our substitute in our place. This verse clearly teaches substitutionary atonement. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, a curse for us, a curse for us. He died in our place. Now, um, I've warned you about some of the trends today in theological circles. And there are those today who do not like substitutionary atonement. They think that that makes God too mean. Some in the emergent church have actually said, if you believe in Uh, substitutionary atonement, or they also call it penal substitution, where Christ took the penalty for us, then 
then God is guilty of divine child abuse. Here's how you know you're, you're in dangerous waters. When they talk about divine child abuse, or they start talking about substitutionary atonement being one of many theories of the atonement, what they're doing is they're saying, let's step back from God being a meanie, and let's, uh, let's just say that there have been different theories of the atonement, and that's just one you want to hold that that's fine but we we want to uh we want to dwell on another theory of the atonement christ is victor or there's all there's all these different uh theories of the atonement run from that guys because pretty soon you won't be focusing on the cross at all you'll just be recycling in your church because it's it's taking the focus basically what they're saying is the heart of the gospel that we love is not nice because it makes God a mean child abuser. And, and here's the thing we need to remember. When Christ, the Son, was nailed to the cross, he didn't go against his will. He went volitionally. See, child abuse is when you give the whooping against the child's will. Jesus went volitionally. In other words, Jesus is not a whipping boy. You know what a whipping boy is? If you're royalty, you're too royal to get spanked. So you had a peasant boy brought in and whipped in your place. And they say, oh, that makes, that makes Jesus, that makes God a, a divine child abuser, and Jesus is a whipping boy. You're not a whipping boy if you voluntarily submit to the whooping. Right? Here's what Jesus says in John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He submitted to the cross. He's not a divine whipping boy. So now, in verse 14, Paul brings us back full circle to where he began with the Spirit. He says, all right, so Christ became a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. What's that saying? All along, God promised Abraham that through you, yes, you'll have a multitude of descendants, One of those descendants, though, will be the Messiah. And the Gentiles will get in on your blessing when they believe in the Messiah. And when they believe in the Messiah, that's when the promised Holy Spirit comes through faith. Oh, uh, Galatians, remember, you already received the Spirit. You're in by faith, 
Not by circumcision, not by food loss, but by faith alone in Christ alone. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would equip us solidly in the gospel. There are always those um, who will want to change it, distort it, confuse us about it. Because Satan is a confuser. He knows that if he messes with your word and your truth, Millions are led astray. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity and understanding the beauty, the glory that's explained in Galatians about the gospel. Thank you that you paid it all. And we are not saved by our response to the gospel, but our response to the gospel will be radical obedience. But thank you, Lord, that you paid it all. And our confidence then is 100% in you, not in us. So, Lord, I pray that you would build that firm foundation in each of our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.